Thanks for checking out this past Sunday's teaching. Every Tuesday, we'll release audio from the previous Sunday's message. If you want to hear the Vertical staff talk more about what these teachings mean for everyday life, a roundtable discussion releases every Wednesday. Thanks for listening. What is up, guys? How are y'all second service? Man, like, it's crazy to me every week when I come up here second service and y'all are much louder than the first service. Maybe y'all just know how to worship in here. We should give lessons. You know, Ben always says when he's up here, second service is full of his people. But we know he's lying. He's bougie. He's a first service kind of guy. I'm the student pastor. Y'all are my people. Y'all are the ones I enjoy, okay? So thank y'all for being loud because I'm side stage and I'm like, let's go. Like Megan said earlier, I'm the student pastor. My name's Austin Roberts. And what that means when the student pastor's on stage is that you get to show a little grace today, right? Is that what it is? Y'all are like, no, y'all are setting your clock. You're like, lunch is early. Come on. There's a very small margin between success and failure. And I need y'all to give me the face if I'm on, tell me which one I'm on today, okay? Success and failure, there's a small margin. And the reality is when you're successful, like Ben, that margin gets smaller, right? Whenever he has a bad talk, you really know because he's given a lot of good talks. So today, hopefully I'll give a mediocre talk and that's okay. The reality is though, when you're successful, failure seems much closer, right? Because you're not happy with a second place finish. You're just not. There are documentaries and there's whole articles written on people who competed in the Olympics and they've been training for their whole lives for the opportunity to compete to that level. And they get there and their happiness is pivotal on where they place. What's really funny about it is if you look at an Olympic podium, the person in third place is psyched. They're really excited. They are happy with third place. Why? Because they didn't think they were gonna be on the podium, right? They're just happy to be up there holding an award. I feel that, you know, that's me. Second place is so bummed though. They're not happy at all. Why? Because they were that close. They were that close to winning. If you go and Google any Olympic podium ever, you will see them. Third place, looking up. Second place, looking just angry about it. Nobody knows that feeling better than the guy that I'm gonna talk about this morning to start this series. This feeling that second place just will not cut it. That I'm not trying to train, I'm not trying to live to come in second place in the finish line. This guy you're probably familiar with, he's up on the side screens right now. His name is Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods is like the epitome of grittiness. And if you know anything about him, whether you're a golf fan or not, you know that this is the iconic pose. He's got that red shirt on signifying that he was victorious, right? We've all read about it, we know. And there's not a better picture of somebody who was able to come past adversity and finish in first place. In 2008, and I, and I read about this very re recently, I'm not necessarily a golf guy, but it's inspiring to hear about him in 2008 winning the US Open on a broken leg with a torn ACL. He forces a playoff and comes back to win. And you see him in this pose and you're like, man, there's not a more iconic picture of a champion. He looks like Jordan in the flu game or Kurt Schilling when his sock was bleeding in game six of the World Series. You're just like, that is the picture of grittiness. But if you know anything about Tiger Woods, you know that there was a really quick downhill turn. I mean, he was not that far removed from this picture when we all see other pictures start to surface about him. We see that, that wrecked Escalade and he's there on the curb with his head on his knees sobbing. 
And he come back and won the US Open, fixed his leg, had all the surgeries, and very quickly he went from the peak and plummeted down. And instead of the face of golf, instead of the poster child for Nike, you would see him in Dixon Academy. He was now the poster child for sex addiction. He was the poster child for the, the life you didn't want. The guy who went from the highest of the high and now he's on the front of all of these tabloids. And for 10 years, 10 years he worked to come back, to even come close to that feeling of him in this picture. And you say, how does a guy who knows how to stay calm under such pressure when he's dragging his leg down the fairway, how does somebody who can stay calm and composed under that sort of pressure lose it with the things that really matter. The reality is that even on the surface, Tiger was probably very tra tranquil. I think that there was some currents going on in his personal life long before that, there had to be. If you know anything about Tiger Woods, you know that he had a very close relationship with his father, Earl Woods. He's gonna be on the screen as well. And from a very early age, Earl Woods would take Tiger out to golf with him. And he knew, he's like, this kid is a prodigy, right? I'm not a child prodigy, but apparently you know him pretty early, okay? Sorry, dad. But you, you, he knew, and you see videos, you can go and YouTube, not now, because I'm talking, but later. I have to tell it to students on Wednesdays. I'm like, you can YouTube, and they're like, yeah, cool. You can YouTube videos of Tiger on the Tonight Show at three years old, and he's putting, and I'm just like, how? How is this three-year-old doing this? He had an aptitude for it, and Earl Woods knew it. But Earl Woods was a narcissist, and Earl Woods was greedy and he was completely okay with exploiting his three-year-old son for his own needs. And so very often Earl Woods would take illegal stipends from Tiger sponsors. Very often he would drink to excess with Tiger in the hotel room with him and even have affairs with Tiger and while he would have affairs cheating on Tiger's mother with Tiger in the hotel room that was bought by Tiger sponsors. They would, they would be on the green and Tiger would be practicing putting at a very young age and he would just be spewing curse words at him, screaming at him at the top of his lungs, all in the name of competition, trying to keep him calm under pressure. And there was one word, ironically, there was one word, a safe word between a father and a son that would get Earl to leave Tiger B. And it was the word enough. Some of you know this, this is, this is famous. Many people have written on this, but it was the word enough. And they wouldn't even say that. They would call it the E word because to Earl, it was a vulgar word. It was a sign of weakness for his son, his teenage son to say that he had had enough and he wanted his father to quit speaking to him this way or treating him this way. When you look at all of this wrapped up in such a successful life of somebody like Tiger Woods, it's really no question that somebody like this would have a large falling out in their life. He never understood what it was like to have enough. Imagine what it's like to grow up thinking that not only do you have to take so much toxicity to be enough, but there's never going to be enough to satisfy you. That is the message that he was getting from his father. And I think that for a lot of us, that's the message we've been hearing ourselves. We're gonna be starting a series this week called The Trouble with Trouble. 
And I'm excited about this series because it's very practical. Sometimes we do very heady series and it's just Ben and I in a room and we're like, yeah, I think that's a good idea. And then we get here and we're like, ugh, you know? This is practical. And that's what I want y'all to get from this. What I want you to get by the end of this series is for you to say, I'm in life when I've met the fork in the road and I'm having to make a decision. I'm not sure what's real. I'm not sure what is tempting. I'm not sure what is fiction versus what is friction. Hopefully by the time we're done with this series, when you come to those decisions in your life, be you young or old, you're able to see what God has in store for you, what he wants to fulfill you and what decisions he would rather you make. You know, Tiger was never able to say that he had enough. And I think very often we find ourselves in the same position and that's one reason why we continue to choose trouble over and over until we no longer recognize where we are. I was thinking about this this week, and I think that it all comes down to this cycle that we typically have in our lives. And it's a cycle that has only been heightened in my own life during quarantine. It's this cycle of restlessness. And in kind of a funny way, I was just getting restless in my apartment. Honestly, I ran out of things to watch. I ran out of miles to run. I, I honestly got bored and said, you know what? I'm gonna run a half marathon sometime in quarantine. It happened and I was like, we're done, <laughs> it's over. But if that is not, <laughs> I did it, did it done. If that is not the picture of restlessness, I don't know what it is. And what it really boiled down to is I could not get enough of things to do. I needed something to do. I couldn't sit here anymore. But that's a perfect picture of what happens in our lives so often. We have a picture of what we want. We have a picture of something that we want. We'll call it desire. This is the first step of this cycle of restlessness. And oftentimes when you're talking to a pastor or you're talking to your therapist, we all have them, they're great. Thank you, therapist. When they talk about desire, it has a bad connotation. But desire isn't a bad thing. It's just something that you want. It's a need in your life. It's something that's going to make you happy. And so if I was to ask any of you, hey, what do you think would make you happy? what would make me happy is probably gonna be different from what would make you happy, right? I'm hoping that the Celtics sweep the Sixers tonight. It's probably not gonna happen. It would make me very happy. Some of you are like, I wish you would shut up so I can get to lunch. I'll get there. I'll make you happy, I promise. But in reality, if I was to say, hey, what would make us all happy? There's probably two bullet points that would come up on each and every one of our lists. Security, to feel safe in your position, which is something where we all feel a little exploited right now, given the current uh, crisis. Security and belonging. We all want belonging. And it doesn't necessarily matter who it's from. It could be from a spouse. It could be from friends. We find belonging in different places. But somewhere, those two things are going to be on all of our lists. Once we're able to label those desires, we go to the second phase of this cycle of restlessness called stirring. Stirring. And stirring is like a purgatory. It's this place where we get stuck because we've been sold on this idea, stick with me, we've been sold on this idea that happiness is a destination. We've been sold on the idea that if we can check this box and this box and this box, ultimately we will reach a place of contentment. And in this stirring position, we typically make a list of things we're shooting after. Those desires begin to grow in the list. I really want a great job. I need a job promotion. And that comes from that want for stability. Not a bad thing, but it makes the list. I want to belong. And so I want a person. I want a partner. That makes the list. We find that in stirring. I want a house. I want a car. I want a family. I want a donut. That was me this morning. 
Ben usually brings the donuts. He's not here today. And I was like, what the crap? <laughs> Texting that. But we, find, we see these desires. We find ourselves in a position of stirring. We want to chase after those things. And this is the spot where we get stuck. We're working, we're working, we're working. We can sit in the place of stirring. We can sit in that part of this cycle for 30 years. It's possible. We know those people. And ultimately, when we get past that point of stirring, we reach contentment. And you're like, that's it. That's done. That's the end of the cycle. Part three, three-part series. But if you're like me, you know that contentment brings a very brief relief. Contentment brings a very brief relief. Because just like me, I thought that that half marathon, once I hit it, I wasn't racing anybody. I was timing myself, but it was for fun. I thought I would hit that and I would be like, yes, fitness. That's not what happened. That contentment only lasts so long. And for me, it was when I caught my breath, you know? And you can ask anybody, you can ask the guy who just hit seven figures in his bank account. You can ask the girl who just got her dream house. You can ask the guy who followed through on those shady text messages he's been hiding. But contentment only brings a brief relief. So what happens then? What happens when our contentment is not enough? When the the thing that we thought was going to reach that, that level of enough doesn't put us over the edge. We hit disappointment and then disappointment always leads to perverted desires. We start that cycle back over again and our desires begin to become a little more distorted. You say, I thought this person was going to be that place where I found my enough. Clearly they're not, because nobody's perfect. So your desires become to be distorted. They get perverted. They're not what they're supposed to look like. Today, what I wanna do is I want to read a letter from a man, an older gentleman, to a younger man, almost as a father figure and say, you have two options on the type of person that you can be. You have two options on the type of person you can be. And only one of them is going to lead to you being able to say, I have enough. This is enough. So let me read this. I'm going to read it. It's kind of a Bible-y, good word. It's kind of Bible-y. So I'll read it and then we can kind of get into it. And what I don't want you to do is like turn off your brain whenever I start saying words like, um, but godliness and contentment is the greatest gain. Okay, because what we often do is we say, look, the New Testament doesn't have the answer for our 2020 problems. And that's true. I really wish that Jesus had sat down on a boat and like talked to 5,000 people and said, so about your 401k. He didn't do that, all right? And so oftentimes we're like, man, this, uh, this isn't working, but the principles are there. And there are principles to the two types of people that Paul writing to Timothy gives in this passage are fantastic and I don't want us to miss them. So I'll start in uh, 1 Timothy chapter six. He says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. My minimalist people, Chris Grode, I don't know where he is, but they're like, yes, you know, I see you. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We've all heard that. So people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Hang with me. But you, 
He's talking to Timothy, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And lastly, he says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made good on your confession in the presence of many witnesses. And you're like, Austin, what are you talking about? Like I said, Paul is describing two types of people here. My dad had a really similar conversation with me when I was gonna marry Caitlin. He was like, Austin, there are two types of guys. They're the ones that are content and they're the ones that are wandering. I was like, wow, dad points. And it's essentially what he's saying the same thing here. Let me throw it up. The two types of people that Paul tells Timothy he has the opportunity to be. The first person he describes is this way, tempted, trapped, foolish, wandering, harmful to others. And just right there, let me pause and say like, we all know those people. I've sat in small groups with those people, with grown men who have been married for 20 years and somehow they're still wandering and they're harming their partner. They're harming people that they love. We know those people, we've been those people. Paul says, Timothy, this is a person that you can be. This is option A. And option B looks very different. The second person is described as righteous, which is just a really churchy way of saying like your actions have value. There's a reason you're doing what you're doing. Righteous, loving, faithful or loyal and a fighter. It's really interesting to me because even though this guy is content, he's not unambitious, he's a fighter. That's how Paul talks about him. And so I think it would be very wise for us to read this passage and ask ourselves two questions. One. Where do you think you fit into this? Which list would you place yourself in this Sunday morning? And secondly, the people who are closest to you, the people in your circle, the people that you love and the people that love you as well, where would they place you? Where would they place you? Which list would they put you on? I'm very, very good at putting myself as person number two. I don't often ask my wife which person I am. But I think, that's a, I think that's an advantageous thing for us to do. Hey, you're, in, you're living life with me. You get to put up with my crap all the time. Where am I? Where am I on this? Which person am I? Which type of man am I this week? And I think you'll find that whichever person you are will really tell you whether or not you have come to a place of you can say enough or not. I think that what we really need, what we want, is to be in a place where we can say enough. And as followers of Christ, that's where we should be. As Vertical Church, we should be a voice in this community that says, we find our enough in this. We don't have to chase over these, after these toxic things, these things that are continually going to leave us wanting in this cycle. We find our enough in Jesus and that's enough. So how do we do that? How do we come to the place where we say enough? Because like we said, we live in a time where technology is gonna tell us there's more things. I can scroll through Instagram and be like, hey, you remember you were talking about wings the other night? Here's Buffalo Wild Wings. I did it last night. They're going to put the things that look like you don't have enough continually in front of you. And it's not just social media. It's your life. You feel like you're missing out on opportunities. There are things that we want to do and it seems like the more you have, the more you'll be able to do those. So how do we say enough? Well, it's gonna be really simple. And this is gonna be the student pastor part of the talk. You're like, did he quit writing the script? No, there's two answers to this. There's two ways to say enough. 
Number one, and the one that I am so bad at, is to say no. The first way to say enough is to say no. And I'm so bad at saying no. One of my favorite things to do is on Monday morning, get on this iPad, hop in my calendar and see all kinds of green and yellow and red and blue blocks that say, you have no time. Megan knows because she sees my calendar. It makes me feel fulfilled. It makes me feel like, wow, I'm actually doing something this week. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of earning my words type of thing. But the reality is that the more we say yes to people, the more their priorities become ours. The more that we say yes to people and the things that aren't actually filling us with passion, the things that God has in store for us, the more we are not able to reap the benefits of what God actually wants for us. So the first thing we have to get really good at, as painful as it is, is saying no. Say no. Say, I have enough on my plate right now. In fact, the things that God has given me, the purposes that he has asked me to take part in, are enough to fulfill me. I'm okay with saying no to things. Revolutionary. I don't often do this, but it's something that I should. We have to be able to say no. And then the next thing you say is yes to what matters. We have to say yes to what matters. Why? Those things, the things that God has placed solely on your heart, and it's going to look very different than what he's put in my life to fulfill me, are the things that actually matter. And often they are the small things. God is going to build you up. He's going to give you very basic things to say yes to before he calls you to those massive acts. We want him to ask big things of us, but we often forget that we have to grow into that. Say yes to what matters. One of my favorite authors wrote this. His name is uh, Ryan Holiday, and he wrote this. He said, we work so hard for our families that we don't notice the contradiction, that it's because we work that we never see them. Oftentimes what God has called you to do right now is to be a mom. And that's way bigger than what he's calling me to do right now. Just because I'm on a stage doesn't mean that my ask is any greater than yours. Sometimes he's just calling you to be a dad. He's not calling you to make all the money in the world. Sometimes he's calling you to be a good husband, a good wife, a good friend. And the reality is if we're saying yes to everything, then we can't say yes when the people that we love need us. Go after the things that God has placed on your heart and only say yes to the things that he has given you a passion for. And let me give you a hint. If you're finding that each day is filled with only two emotions, passion and fatigue, you're in the wrong place. You should not be getting tired over the things that God has given you. He wants you to be well rested, that's scriptural, be well rested so that you can take on the battles that God has for you. So as we close today, I wanna ask you one more thing and I want you to think about this and then I will pray over you. What do you want more of in life? Where do you find the most fulfillment? Is it with that small group? Then put your effort into that small group. Is it with volunteering in the lobby? Do that, that's great, that's what God has for you. Is it being Jesus for that one person? Is that your ask right now? Do that, what do you want more of in life? God has instilled passions within each and every one of us and he's given you the gifts to take care of those things. Say yes to those things and no to the rest because that's where we're going to reach the most fulfillment and that's where we will find that we actually have enough in him. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these 
these folks that show up each week, God, I love getting to teach in second service. It fills me with life because I get to see people who are leaving here each week. They're leaving out of a gray building. They're stepping out of gray chairs and they're going to do your work in the city around us. God, we are not so arrogant to think that your word is taught here and it doesn't leave here. God, in reality, this is just a place where we rally, where we are empowering people so that they can go and do the kingdom work that you have for them. God, I thank you so much for the people that show up in second service each week. They come here each week and we worship and we talk about you and then we go and we do. I pray that each and every one of these people is fulfilled in what you're calling them right now and that they would be brave enough to say no to the things that you don't have for them. God, I love this church. We love you and we give you all the glory for the things that are happening here. Amen.